0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia.
1: This week we found out how we're tackling some of the big challenges involving feeding the planet. Now, when you live in a desert, making the most of what you have around you is quite important, especially if you want to feed your small country. And that's what just one country is doing. They're using science to solve this problem plus biofuels, how we can make them more efficient and where we should really grow them, plus how we can make the most of coffee and turn it into something that everyone can enjoy. Now, now as previously established, Lauren, you you don't drink particularly a lot of coffee.
0: I hate the taste of it. I mean, I would love the caffeine, but I just can't get past that taste. Well, how
1: do you, how do you what's your source of caffeine now? Do you eat, um, drink tea? Do you eat certain types of food, maybe energy bars.
0: Um, actually, tea and energy drinks, which I know are very harmful <laughs> and I am so ashamed of myself, but sometimes I just need that extra kick.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because some people do not very much like the taste of coffee at all. Mm-hmm. And many people actually view coffee as an acquired taste or something that they just can't stomach. Other people sweeten it beyond belief. Other people add cream to the top of it to make it a bit more palatable. Um, but a, uh, a nutritionist and scientist by the name of Dan Pillman and Casey Haynes have basically teamed up to come up with a new way to make coffee a bit more accessible to the masses who may not want to drink 300 cups of coffee like a coffee bora, bora bear of Beatles. <laughs> or, you know, university students. So, you know, when when you when you roast green coffee beans, you actually enhance the, the flavor as well as some of the health benefits for it. Now, there's a lot of different. Nutritional studies about what's good for you, what's bad for you, what's not. what's and, and I don't want to get into the science of that. There is a lot of poorly done science with studies that say, this week, this is good for you. This week, this is bad for you. I don't want to enter that debate. There's a lot of weird, unreputable science going on there. But what we do know is that when you actually roast coffee, um, there is one of the theories is that there's a natural chemical compound called chlorogenic acid, CGA, which is an antioxidant which has been shown to be beneficial in modulating sugar metabolism, controlling blood pressure and and having some relationship with our uh, ability to respond positively to heart disease and fight off cancer. Now we know that CGA can have that effect. Now the connection between CGA and coffee is varied and we're not sure how much coffee is actually related to doing that but we know that sometimes CGA can help us in that area as an antioxidant. Not saying that coffee is a miracle worker, but it, it seems to have a positive impact, not who knows how big. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, if you don't like coffee, like Lauren, how do you get that positive benefit from the CGA?
0: Are you just going to create a miracle coffee that I can drink and is not going to taste horrible?
1: Well, there's probably another way to go around it. And the, what these re, these two researchers have teamed up to do is to figure out a way to like par-bake, so partly cook and bake, the coffee beans.
0: So how do you par bake? You just cook it at a lower temperature, or cook well, they it for took less they, time. They or? cook
1: it. They when you normally roast coffee, you roast it for about ten to fifteen minutes at four hundred degrees Fahrenheit. So huge temperatures, you know, obviously above one hundred fifty to two hundred degrees Celsius. And you know the problem is that kills all the C G A, the thing that we think <laughs> is useful in coffee. It kind of kills it off. But if you lower the temperature down and bake it for less time, you actually improve the concentration and you you basically keep it at its natural levels, which, you know, it's not nice to just chew on a raw coffee bean, but Mm -hmm. it's kind of closer to that level than after you cook it and turn it into a drink.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, you can't make coffee though. You can't make a liquid coffee out of this par-baked thing because it's kind of still much more like an actual plant. But what we can do is just exactly what we do to lots of other actual plants and that's grind them into a flour base.
0: So coffee flour?
1: Yes. So by combining this with other natural flours, you can actually make a blended coffee flour.
0: Oh no. This means coffee's going to be everywhere. That
1: means you can bake coffee snacks, coffee cake, without not just adding coffee into it. No, no, no. The flour itself is a mixture of normal flour and coffee.
0: I won't be able to escape it anymore.
1: And basically what it is, you get a wheat-coloured flour, but it has a bit more of a nutty, and a very mild coffee taste into it. So it's not like you're drinking a cup of coffee, it just has a very subtle hint from it.
0: And but there's more CGA in it than usual?
1: Correct. So the CGA now, the thing that we think is useful in coffee, is actually kept preserved, and then you can eat it in a way that's both pay useful for you and also tasty. So... If you can't stomach coffee, the good news is that you can uh, head over to New England in Massachusetts and actually try some of this par-baked coffee um, from Perlman and Casey Hayes Research, and actually develop for yourself and have these uh, coffee-based, flour-based snacks.
0: I'd definitely try it.
1: Well, got to be better than drinking enormous amounts of tea and energy drinks. Now, when you live in a desert, finding enough food can be quite a challenge. And this is something that we've struggled with for aeons. In fact, it's basically the birthplace of civilization in ancient Sumeria was built around solving this very challenge. So if you're a small country like Qatar, which exists in a terribly dry, and mostly inhospitable climate, you tend to import all your food. Yes, there is some food there, but not enough now to sustain what is actually quite a large population. So... In an ambitious plan, the government of Qatar has made a national food security program which basically is aiming to meet a way to produce basically all their own food inside Qatar in a sustainable way. And effectively, this kind of means you have to grow it without soil or nutrient-based soil, which eliminates traditional farming. But what it doesn't eliminate is the area of hydroponics. Now, you may have heard of the term hydroponics, and you may have heard about all the misnomers or what it's often used for, either for NASA or occasionally with reference to the production of illegal drug labs, but hydroponics actually itself dates back to about 1627 in the book Silva Silvarum by Francis Bacon, where he actually uh, contemplated and listed a way to grow terrestrial plants without soil and this was basically done using a water culture. Later through the years, particularly over through to the 1850s and 60s, uh, this became to be developed into an actual soilless cultivation method, which is more in line with what we now know as hydroponics today. And in the 1930s, universities such as the University of California at Berkeley began to really heavily promote this, both the aquaculture and hydroponics. Whilst hydroponics you know, does have a fancy Greek name, it's not actually an ancient word, it's one that we've recently invented ourselves. But one of the big pushes of hydroponics, after some early initial trials in Wake Island and Pan Am Airlines, um, is actually done for NASA, because of course, when you want to feed astronauts, you may need to feed them when they're on their own deep in space, and without anyone else around them. That's where hydroponics becomes a very attractive and almost necessary solution rather than carrying all your food with you. In fact, if you've seen the movie The Martian, you'll be very familiar with this concept. So how does it work? Effectively, there there are two basic components to growing something without soil. Uh, you need... You either basically need to try and do it in water, in a solution of some kind, which has all the nutrients in it, or you try and do it without it, um, with kind of basically airflow uh, and some rocks and stuff underneath it to sort of hold some nutrients there in kind of a substrate. And between these two different methods, you can actually make some tremendously good farming methods for food. Uh, NASA has been doing this for many years growing things like lettuce, tomatoes, onions and various other foods and they use effectively a nutrient solution and they pass it through and it actually works quite well several of the substrate based methods where they have kind of like a, a layer underneath it to sort of help hold the nutrients there actually use things such as recycled materials which help improve the sustainability of the situation as well whether that be waste products from other food, like rice husks, uh, various types of rock, sand, gravels, wood fibres, leftovers from plastic, or even polystyrene packing peanuts can often be used for it. Now, even though you use a solution at the base, basically, to which instead of having have the plant into the solution rather than the soil, it actually only uses about a 20th of the regular amount of water used by a farm, however you may want to use some artificial light systems to actually help improve it. But recent research from the Malaysia University of Science and Technology has actually highlighted a new method to basically have vertical and horizontal soilless gardens which could be used to increase normal yields from these kind of crops for about a hundred times. And so you can basically grow substantially more food than you would need on the traditional land area, plus using a lot less water. And so if you're in a desert like Qatar, it's pretty much ideal. So what you do is you pretty much really tightly control and engineer these plants, sometimes tending via robots or tightly controlled watering systems where you provide them the exact amounts of light, gas, and nutrients, uh, and, which means they don't need to be treated with fertilisers or pesticides or weedicides and other side harsh chemicals. And they basically are almost all identical and visibly and seem cleaner and more richer in nutrient content because you've precisely grown them. And they don't use anywhere near as much water. But it does have a large, large overhead to set up. And the University of Malaysia's research has shown that plants can grow up to 50% bigger, use only 10% of the traditional amount of water, and basically costs overall 90% less than traditional farming methods. Really, the only reason why you wouldn't do it is the exorbitant cost to set up originally, but once you have set up and spent that money, it will go quite well. So if you're Qatar, or anywhere really in a desert, and struggling with the concept of feeding yourself, or maybe even in space... Hydroponics and the various variations on it are probably your best bet to ensuring that you have enough food to survive and doing so sustainably. Now, when it comes to fuel for our vehicles and energy, one of the major things that is used is ethanol, as a, basically a biofuel. Many buses in Australia and other countries across the world run on ethanol. And it's particularly strong in the United States, where they can easily and very quickly grow a lot of corn, and the government has massive subsidies to promote the production of these biofuels. You can also produce biofuels, as we've talked about before, by basically capturing methane from farming processes or waste digestion. Uh, in methane plants or treatment sewage treatment plants. Overall, about 105 billion litres of biogas are produced each year, and this is used in everything from just general equipment to actually improving the lives and transportation costs of everyone across the world. In fact, take Walmart, for example. They have a fleet of trucks in part of their distribution network that actually runs on converted biofuel from the reclaimed cooking grease produced at its very own stores which is quite of a cool concept. The problem is, if you want to grow this fuel, you actually are taking away from producing what would otherwise be useful food on agricultural arable land. And it is a big question about whether or not they should be growing food there or other types, and how much water is actually being used in the process, particularly as some of the areas of the United States are in severe drought. Water conservation is quite important. So what researchers at the University of Illinois have studied is which crops would be best suited to which regions, rather than just planting corn everywhere and just hoping for the best, which is pretty much what's happening in a lot of the United States. They've actually analysed what would be the most efficient use of the local resources of water and land, and which crops would best suit that. Now, you don't just have to grow corn. There's other things such as a bioenergy grass miscanthus that is really, really efficient uh, in in terms of by gas production and biomass productivity, and it has a really, really low water consumption, so it would be ideal. And unfortunately, though, even though it's kind of like your best star, by looking at the water resources and climate conditions that would be suitable to it, there's not actually much match for it in the United States, unfortunately. So the best bet actually isn't to use this seeming star candidate. Uh, Miscanthus is pretty much your best bet uh, to, to go there, once it's some wetter areas like those around the Mississippi River. Miscanthus and even cavian rock, another type of grass, is, becomes less useful. That being said, using some of these grass-based things instead of corn not only protects the, the, the soil and the surrounding environment from nitrogen leaching away from crops and downstream, uh, damaging the ecosystem, but it also uh, helps revitalize the soil in the area. And they can actually withstand, withstand droughts, which is pretty much what you want from a crop. So rather than using corn as a be endor all and end-all for biofuel production, there are different types of grasses and other plants that have high productivity, pound for pound, so to speak, uh, and actually can protect our environment as well that we should consider using uh, to produce biogas and biofuels.
0: This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Le Grange Point.
1: So we talked about how biofuel can help us fuel the planet, plus how one small country is turning to science to help feed their country plus ways to turn coffee into a tasty snack for a while.
0: Our ending theme was composed by audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the young scientists of Australia.